You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. An underground market has emerged since the Biden administration announced it would accept 30,000 immigrants each month arriving by air from Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua and Haiti. Applicants for that humanitarian parole program need someone in the U.S. to promise to provide financial support for at least two years. Often that person is a friend or relative. But what happens if a migrant doesn't have that friend or relative to promise financial support? Facebook groups with names like Sponsors U.S. carry dozens of posts offering financial supporters, some demanding up to $10,000, according to the Associated Press. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services warns about potential scams with the humanitarian parole program. But there's no indication that applications have been rejected because of concerns that potential sponsors might be requesting money. Joining me is immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, explain what's happening here. So here's what the situation is. Ever since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Biden administration has responded to various events around the world with a new concept called allowing people to be paroled into the United States. They basically created this bifurcated process whereby an American could actually come forward and step up to the plate and say, you know what, I'm going to take the financial responsibility for sponsoring a particular foreign national. And then if that person gets vetted and is viewed to have sufficient assets to do that, Then step two happens, and then the foreign national comes forward and declares their desire to want to be paroled and to essentially be within the auspices of this foreign national. And assuming those background checks clear, then the person can actually be paroled into the United States. And what a parole is, is it's basically a permission document that says for a year you have legal status in America, but at any point we can kick you out within the year if we revoke your parole. And within that year, you're going to have to figure out what you want to do. Do you want to apply for asylum? Do you want to do something else? But you get to come in for a year and figure out what your plan is. And so what has happened is there are obviously many more people who demand to come into the United States than there are a supply of individuals who are willing to actually and legitimately come forward and sponsor people financially for these parole documents. And so, like anything, nature abhors a vacuum, and where people can find a way to make money, they do. 
And so people have decided, well, what if we were to sell sponsorships to some of these foreign nationals so they can pay to have people sponsor them? And so the government, having found out that this is now happening through various monitoring of social media and talking to people and doing intelligence work, is trying to figure out, well, given the fact that we kind of made this program up in the fly and didn't actually say or figure out a way where this would be illegal, what are we to do now? Is this something we will allow to happen? Do we have to do something to not permit it to happen? And the government is sort of caught betwixt and between there. Because it seems odd. So you're paying someone, let's say $10,000, for a promise to provide financial support. Is that a real promise? Are they going to be providing the financial backup that the government is looking for? I mean, it's It's absolutely against, for sure, the spirit of the program. I think the question is, what does sponsorship mean in this context? What I mean by that is to say this process generates itself from something that happened in 1990 where the government was concerned about marriage fraud. And what it said was, we're not just going to let anybody marry a U.S. citizen. That U.S. citizen who marries a foreign national has to make a sufficient amount of income and actually say, if my wife or my husband, whoever the spouse is of the foreign national, ends up using any government resources, then I agree to be on the hook for paying those government resources. The government can't come in and have to sponsor my spouse for me. I have to do this. And so that's where the concept is based off of. And although that concept is very, very, very rarely enforced, the Trump administration was about to start doing that near the end of the first term of the Trump administration to start coming after people and asking for money to be paid. It hadn't really been done since 1990. Now, this new program is sort of mimicking that, but doesn't have the same statutory guidelines, because that's part of the affidavit of support was a statutory thing for that marriage issue. And so the question is, if you're doing something that's not even a regulation, because this is all memo-based, if you're basically writing a memo, creating a parole program, and creating this sponsorship requirement, does the government have any teeth whatsoever to punish someone who's being a sponsor just because they're being paid to be a sponsor? And so that's the problem that the government is encountering. So it seems like there is a real possibility that fraud is involved when they're filling out the forms and making these promises. They have to say what their relation is to the person, right? Right. I mean, for sure, there's definitely, if you commit fraud on the form, if you say that you intend to pay for for benefits of someone if they don't actually do it, or if you say you're their relative and you're not actually their relative, Or if you declare that you're doing this in good faith and you haven't been paid for it, which I think they're going to try to amend the forms to do that, then you can for sure charge the person for fraud there. But it's something that I think they didn't even think about at the beginning, that this could be something that would happen. And, of course, you always, when you do one of these programs, have to be worried that bad actors will try to manipulate it because that's been the history of any immigration programs in the United States. You've often said that most of the people who are coming here have someone that they're, you know, intend to go to, a relative. Shouldn't most of these, you know, the Cubans, the Nicaraguans, and the Venezuelans have people here who could vouch for them this way? 
Oh, agreed. So for the people who would normally have used this program, there was not a problem at all finding a sponsor. In fact, there are many, many more people who have sponsors than there are going to be slots for these 36,000 visas a month. The point is, though, there are many people who don't know anybody. And now those people are being told, well, here's a way for you to know somebody. So what, what is happening is not that there's an insufficient number of people who have sponsors. What's happening is that not every single person in that country has a sponsor. But by buying a sponsor, you now open up the possibility of being sponsored to even more people than could have otherwise had that possibility. So these are people who would never have come, but now might come because they can acquire a sponsor. I want to turn now to this case that's before the Supreme Court. In 2003, Situ Wilkinson fled government persecution in his native Trinidad and Tobago for the United States on a tourist visa. He overstayed the visa and had a son who's a U.S. citizen and who's regularly hospitalized due to severe asthma attacks. And when the government moved to deport him, Wilkinson asked for what's called cancellation of removal, arguing that his son and the boy's mother need him because he's the family's sole breadwinner. The boy's mother suffers from depression and would be left unable to cope medically or financially without his support. An immigration judge denied his request, as did the Third Circuit, and he's asking the Supreme Court to look at his case. So explain the background here. Whenever a non-citizen goes through the removal process, if they have a claim that the immigration court and or the Board of Immigration Appeals applied the wrong law in their case or incorrectly decided the law or incorrectly did something that violated the Constitution, those claims of law can be appealed to the courts of appeal. What can't be appealed are factual determinations. There's a small exception for factual determinations in asylum cases, but mostly factual determinations cannot be appealed. Now, three years ago, there was a decision in the Supreme Court that talked about these waivers of deportation, which is what happens is sometimes a deportation order is entered against you, but you can actually get a waiver where the judge says, okay, I know we can deport you, but we will waive this deportation because you qualify as a matter of discretion. You qualify for this waiver, and so I'll give it to you so you get to stay. And what the court said is if something is an issue of mixed questions of fact and law, then they can review it. So now in this upcoming case that people are asking for review in the Supreme Court, What happens is the following. There's about 4,000 slots a year for this type of relief called cancellation of removal. And what it is is if you're here without any status at all, period, and the government is trying to deport you, you can actually avoid deportation if you can prove that you've been here for over 10 years. That's the first key thing. And secondly, that your deportation is going to be causing And it's a very difficult standard to meet, an exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to a U.S. citizen. It's usually a U.S. citizen child, but it can also be a U.S. citizen spouse. And if you can prove that, then you can be allowed to stay and actually get lawful permanent residency. So the question in this case was that the court felt that 
the amount of hardship that the person showed was not sufficient to meet this exceptional and extremely unusual hardship standard. We would all agree if the court got the facts wrong in this kind of question, you couldn't review that. You know, if the court thought, let's say they say this person didn't do anything for the community, and the person said, well, I had evidence that I volunteered in my church, so you should have put that in there and weighed it as a discretionary thing. That kind of thing wouldn't be able to be reviewed. But the question is, if everybody agrees on the facts, can you then make a determination that could be reviewed about whether those facts were sufficient to meet this exceptional and extremely unusual hardship standard? Or is that just for the judge to decide and that can't get reviewed? And so that's what's going to be potentially pending in the Supreme Court. So, you know, a lot of people who've been here for a decade have children who are U.S. citizens. And so it's not enough to say, well, I have three children who are U.S. citizens and they're going to miss me and it's going to be awful for them? Correct. That's considered normal hardship. There's actually a famous Board of Immigration Appeals case called Matter of Racinas. And in that case, the person had something like three or four U.S. citizen children, one with a severe mental uh, illness, another one with a severe medical problem. And then the, the problem was if this person was deported, then not only could those kids not be taken care of, but she also had parents here in the United States and siblings. And the court said, when we put all of this stuff together, you barely make it. And so they didn't say, oh, okay, this is a slam dunk. And that was a case for where an immigration judge said no. And then the Board of Immigration Appeals said, yeah, you, you make it, but you barely make it. And so that was the kind of thing that was considered exceptional and extremely unusual hardship. And so that's the question here is, does the person in this case meet that standard? And, you know, to show it, you have to basically show serious medical issues or something of that kind that the U.S. citizen relative has that requires not only them to stay here, but perhaps you, more importantly, to stay here so you can give them the care they need or pay for the care that they need. And that's the kind of thing that's being talked about here. So here, I think the the son has asthma and the mother is depressed, so she can't take care of him or support him financially. So now, in this case, the immigration judge said no. Did the Board of Immigration Correct. take a look at it? Yes. So in every case, both have to look at it, the immigration judge and the Board of Immigration Appeals. And the decision actually always gets appealed from the Board of Immigration Appeals. But what happens is the Board of Immigration Appeals, often like here, acts like a rubber stamp, so they don't actually issue anything more. So that's why people say Board of Immigration Appeals, but sometimes it's actually the immigration judge who they make the decision and the Board of Immigration Appeals just says affirmed. And so then that decision gets appealed to the Court of Appeals. And so exactly like you said, this case here was one where the child has asthma and they said that, you know, without the son's mother, they wouldn't be able to medically or financially provide for this child who has asthma attacks, and they viewed that as hardship, but again, not exceptional and extremely unusual hardship. And so that's the question. And, you know, this is like a perfect gray area type of case where if you get a very sympathetic judge, they might approve it. But if you get a judge that doesn't want to approve any of these, then they wouldn't approve this. And the question is, can you set a standard 
for a case like this, or is this really just up to the judge? And I think that's what the Supreme Court's going to be grappling with. Are the circuits split on this? Yes, correct. The circuits are split on this. And so there are some circuits, like the Ninth Circuit, who says, yes, this can be reviewed because this is actually not a discretionary determination. This is a legal determination as to whether a specific agreed-upon set of facts meets the legal standard of exceptional and extremely unusual hardship. But the Third Circuit says, no, this is not a legal question. This is a discretionary question, basically saying, have you sufficiently tugged at the discretionary heartstrings of the judge (laughs) to get the relief? And so it'll be interesting to see what the Supreme Court thinks about this. Yet another case that now the Ninth Circuit is going to hear on bank is over temporary protected status. And so Trump pulled back protections for migrants from El Salvador, Haiti, Nicaragua, Sudan, and also Nepal and Honduras. And the Biden administration has redesignated Haiti and Sudan for TPS status. Isn't that the Biden administration's decision whether or not there should be a TPS status for a country? I mean, why is this even in court? Correct. Interestingly, this lawsuit started in the Trump administration when Trump tried to say, look, there's a lot of countries where their nationals were given temporary protective status for disasters that happened in the 90s. And so why here in the second part of the 21st century are people still allowed to stay on the basis of a disaster that was supposed to temporarily affect them in the 1990s? And so there was this lawsuit saying, yeah, but what you did was you were acting in a discriminatory manner that violated the Equal Protection Clause, and you also violated the Administrative Procedure Act by not explaining the current conditions in the country and how those conditions have been affected since that natural disaster. And so all of this was in litigation, and then the Trump administration leaves and the Biden administration comes back. And oddly enough, as you point out, the Biden administration doesn't continue the temporary protective status for some of these countries. It it actually continues to choose to litigate this issue. And so now this issue where the applicants had actually lost in the Ninth Circuit, they are actually now getting a full en banc, meaning, well, not the full court, because in the Ninth Circuit there are so many judges, you get 12 judges, which is considered the full court. You get get an en banc panel of, well, 12 judges, but, but those judges are now going to consider what uh, will be done. Can you end temporary protected status that way? And so it begs the question, if the government wins and wins all of the lawsuits, will the Biden administration simply find a different route to protect these people fighting effects now? Because I think what they've had a problem with, at least justifying this intellectually, is I think they, too, think that there's a complication with saying that the 1996 conditions justify extensions of TPS. I think they think when that was sort of being done on an automated basis every 18 months, that was one thing. But once an actual Department of Homeland Security, even if it was President Trump's department, it doesn't matter, went through the facts and said, look, we need to break this chain of causation, when they feel like it's true, there's not a natural disaster from 1996 that justifies this continuance of TPS anymore. And so it will be interesting to see what happens after all of this is over. Do they cite some new reason that's more current to protect these people under 
temporary protected status, or does it end up falling away yet again? That's going to be very interesting to see after this litigation is all over. But, you know, it's supposed to be temporary, so why continue to protect people if, you know, the, the reason for protecting them is gone? That sort of belies the That's, whole the whole program. correct. There was a bit of inertia that happened here where when it first happened in 1996, when there were these earthquakes and hurricanes and things, for these countries from Central America. You know, so there was 18 months, and then there was another 18 months, and people sort of understood those first 36 months. And then for the next 18 months, people said, well, maybe we need this last 18 months. And then once you got past those 18 months, then it was, well, people have already been here for five years, six years. They've had U.S. citizen kids. Now you're going to deport them. What a creation of a tragedy you're doing. And so then... That was the argument, and that sort of was inertia upon inertia upon inertia. Mm. And you ended up with this situation where you couldn't emotionally justify kicking people out who've now been here 25 years. And so that's why Congress has these bills to try to get these folks green cards, but they have not passed. And so we are where we are, which is that the real purpose of the statute, which is to give temporary relief, very difficult to argue that a 1996 disaster is still the basis for someone staying in America in 2023. And so the question is, what do you do then? So, you know, every week there's another immigration problem or policy that there's news on. So I guess it doesn't come as much as a surprise that a new Gallup poll that was released today revealed that Americans are more dissatisfied with immigration into the country than they've been in years. 63% of respondents are dissatisfied with U.S. immigration overall, and that's the lowest reading in a decade. And most say that they want immigration decreased. I wonder if a lot of this is because of the busing of migrants from Texas has led to people in different parts of the country you know, being exposed to the problems of placing migrants. I think this is all part of it. I think really what anything comes down to with regard to immigration law or immigration policy or immigration acceptance by the populace in the United States is the following. People abhor a vacuum. And so what happens is right now, the only people talking about immigration are people pointing out that there's a problem with the immigration system. The Biden administration doesn't want to spend any time talking about immigration. In fact, in the State of the Union, they may have mentioned it for 30 seconds. If they mentioned it for 30 seconds, it was too long. (laughs) And what really comes down to is this. Whether you set the level at a high level or you set the level at a low level or you set the level at a medium level, what the American people want is a strategy, an explanation, and a feeling that it's not out of control. And that's the key for the Biden administration, is to explain to people why the system is the way it is, why it's not out of control to the extent that they can explain that, what their plan is to get it further under control, and why the system and the decisions they're making, this is the key part, actually advance the interests of America and Americans. Because a lot of the rhetoric for better and for worse, for both, because I think it's helpful and good to be compassionate to the people trying to flee a lot of terrible conditions in their home countries. But a lot of the rhetoric you hear from immigration advocates 
and from some people in the Democratic Party is a rhetoric that's centered on the interests of the foreign national entering the United States and the problems they're suffering. And while that's understandable and sympathetic, you have to, if you're going to sell a system and a, and a series of decisions, sell it on why that decision and that system is good for America and the national interest of the United States. And that's where the Republicans have made very good headroad in talking about immigration in that way. They constantly use this phrase, the national interest, and they constantly say that only low levels of immigration are good for the national interest of Americans. But because they're the only people making this argument, then that's what's going to be assumed, because nobody's making an argument about why moderate levels or higher levels are better for the American interest. And so that's why you see this disconnect where more and more and more people continue to say on a higher and higher level that low immigration is good for America's national interest and that the current system is out of control. So the problem really is moving forward. Can the Biden administration explain what it's doing, articulate a vision, articulate a system, and explain why that system and that vision is in the interest of America and Americans? Well, and also immigration satisfaction was highest during the early part of former President Trump's term. So this is something that the Biden administration is going to have to answer when it comes time for the 2024 elections. Correct. That's the point. And the key thing is, if you look at how President Trump changed the conversation on immigration, it wasn't just that he lowered the levels of immigration. People are not so sensitive to the numbers being high or low. People are sensitive to the discussion that the immigration system is being tailored to the national interests of the United States. And that was constantly a phrase that he used. And he constantly tried to explain at least his vision of immigration, which was that the less immigration that there was, the more that was in America's interest. Thanks so much, Leon. You always have the answers, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The wife of billionaire Israel Izzy Englander filed an explosive lawsuit against the millennial management chairman and then withdrew it the day after. In the suit, Carol Englander claimed that her husband of 48 years conducted a years-long campaign of pressure and coercion against her and her girlfriend, having them followed nearly constantly, hacking their emails and phones, and interfering with their family lives in order to get her to sign a post-nuptial agreement. Izzy Englander has a net worth of $11.5 billion, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index, and his estranged wife says he got more than 95 percent of the value of their marital assets in the post-nup. On Friday, Carol Englander dropped the suit, which was filed by her and her girlfriend, Swiss art dealer Dominique Levy. A spokesperson for Englander said it was dropped 
in an effort to resolve this as a family matter. Joining me is Peter Walzer, the founding partner of Walzer, Melcher & Yoda, an L.A. family law firm. So Carol Englander is claiming that she signed the post-nup under duress. Tell us a little about her allegations. Well, it sounded like what we would call coercive control. In other words, a pattern of, of stalking, berating, uh, threatening for having a relationship with her friend, Dominique. And it sounded like, according to Carol, there was a lot of pressure on her, and it was a very unpleasant situation, I imagine, for all of them after a very long marriage, I mean, almost 50 years. Do you know if there was a prenuptial agreement in this case? I don't know, and there's been no report of that. So one would think, considering the length of the marriage, probably no premarital agreement. He allegedly got her to sign an agreement before they divorced? Well, I don't know that they're even divorced. There's no indication that they actually got divorced. Tell me about post-nups in general. Do a lot of couples have post-nups? Is it unusual? No. I mean, I've been doing this over 40 years, and I've done literally hundreds of, we call them premarital agreements, and I've done probably five to ten post-marital agreements that actually got signed. Now, people come in and they want them, but they often lead to a divorce. Basically, they're harder than prenups, and the standards are a lot different than prenups. What are the standards? Uh, for example, for prenup, no consideration is required. Consideration means something bargained for in exchange, or if you give me this, I'll give you that. Whereas in a postmarital agreement, there is a requirement of consideration. Somebody's got to get something for what they're giving up. And in this case, if Carol was giving up half the marital estate, which could be $5 billion, she would have to get something in exchange for that. It doesn't have to be equal, but there has to be consideration for it. Next, where people in a premarital agreement do not have a fiduciary duty to one another, in a postmarital agreement, they have a fiduciary duty, which means a lot stronger scrutiny of the agreement for fairness and so on. So in addition, in a premarital agreement, you can waive the disclosure beyond what's provided, but in a, a postmarital agreement, you can't waive the disclosure. There's got to be a full disclosure to both people signing the agreement. In this case, she claims that he didn't disclose the extent of their marital assets. Right. She made all the necessary claims, duress, perhaps fraud, all those required claims. But the problem with that is we don't know the details, but you can imagine she had an attorney review it. She signed the agreement, the agreement like most agreements between spouses state there was no duress, there was no fraud, she had adequate time to review the agreement, and so on and so forth. So once she does that and 
the agreements notarized, it's hard to say that you didn't know what you were doing or you were pressured into signing it. It's different. Occasionally you get these agreements the spouses sign between each other on a piece of paper. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about wealthy people who had attorneys, who reviewed it, who made a decision. She says that he got most of the marital assets, but he's worth $11.5 billion, and if she got 5%, that's still a lot of money to most people. I was doing the numbers like that, too, and I thought, that's not bad. I think I could live on $500 million. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I might have to, you know, budget on the food, uh, but otherwise I'd be fine. Let's just say that this goes forward. How would a judge decide whether or not there was duress, whether or not this passed the test for a post-nup? Well, there's a great New York case called Hershkowitz versus Levy. Uh, you can Google it. It lays out the standards. And in this 2021 case, which is recent in terms of the law, talks about a post up between a self-represented attorney and his wife. And they agreed that after 2013, everything they had would be separate. And then the husband comes along and uh, tries to set aside the post-marital agreement. I guess wife did better than him in the marriage. And he said it was unconscionable and there was duress and she didn't give him enough time to sign it. And it really lays out the law for post-marital agreements. And the case says an agreement between spouses which is fair on its face will be enforced according to its terms unless there's proof of unconscionability or fraud, duress, overreaching, or other conduct. Unconscionability means shocking to the conscience. It's just not unfair. So New York's really laid out the law for post-ups in a nice way in this case. So the person trying to set it aside initially has the burden to show it was unfair. So now we find out that just a day after filing this, she withdrew it. So what do you make of that? Well, when there's not much money, a deal can always be struck. It's not like money is the issue. And she probably didn't have much of a case except bad publicity. When you're in your 70s, you probably don't need bad publicity. Neither of them did. And so a deal could be struck. Now, we don't know if a deal was struck, but somebody said, hey, let's, let's talk about it. We can work something out. With that kind of money, you know, maybe all she wanted was another half a billion dollars, you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, really, you got to look what causes these losses between anybody, but especially wealthy people. It's not the money. It's hurt feelings. It's anger. It's resentment. And uh, if people could sit down and talk, they could make a deal. Now, she made a deal already, but she obviously wanted more. And he has more to give. What's he going to do with it? You know, that kind of money is not going to make anybody's life different. Now, he could have reacted differently and been angry and said, as a matter of principle, I'm not going to talk to you ever again. I'll see you in court. But that's time-consuming. 
And even though expense is not an issue, it's expensive. But mainly it's aggravating, emotionally disturbing. So at their age, they're both in their 70s, neither of them need that kind of stress. So they did the smart thing, you know, withdraw it and work out a deal. Thanks so much, Peter. That's Peter Walzer of Walzer, Melcher, and Yoda. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing to the Bloomberg Law Podcast or downloading the show at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And attorneys get the latest in AI-powered legal analytics, business insights, and workflow tools at BloombergLaw.com. With guidance from our experts, you'll grasp the latest trends in the legal industry, helping you achieve better results. For the practice of law, the business of law, the future of law, visit BloombergLaw.com. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.